starting a new study. Very nice. Very nice. So, study of the book of Romans. Um, this Sunday, next Sunday, at least. I mean, maybe a third, but then we should be done. Thank you. Okay. We're going to just read through the first part of chapter 9 of Romans. So you all know that we don't necessarily do a study from chapter 1 because we identify where the thought pattern is going, identify thought patterns and then work it back so that we can make sense of what... Also, if we don't do it chronologically, it kind of spices things up. Like, what are we going to do next? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so, Paul, the apostle, writes this letter to the church in Rome. Uh, there would, at this stage, be a good uh, mixture of um, uh, Roman citizens, including some Hebrew people, um, Greeks, and whoever from other nations of the Gentiles has become Roman citizens. So, I tell, I tell the truth in Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and can continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Messiah for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Messiah came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God is not, has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau 
I have hated. We're going to connect this quickly with um, a dynamic abortion of truth that we um, saw uh, while doing the previous study and put some perspective on the plan. So in the study on the book of Romans, we will find that our focus will be on plan consciousness. And that's why we're starting the study in the chapter uh, 9 of this letter. Because we're looking at the plan. This is a summed up synopsis of God's plan, God's way. And it makes it very, very clear that God from the start, according to his own will, uh, did things uh, in his own way, the way he decided. And uh, we're going to look at the plan. Uh, we, the purpose of the study is for us to understand the covenant. Uh, the world out there have an idea that there's an Old Covenant, and a New Covenant, an Old Testament, and a New Testament. Um, it's not correct. There is a New co Covenant, but it is part of a covenant being fulfilled. We will show how our New Covenant is, is the unfolding, or the perfecting, or the coming into effect of the covenant with Abraham. That is what our covenant is. And the covenant has different parts. Um, but let's go back to the plan. We did a study on the book of Revelation. And so we did look at the coming back of Messiah. How that fits together. Um, what judgment is and is not. And uh, what we know about judgment. We looked at uh, the idea of a rapture. And the idea of judgment of the saints. Uh, reward for good works and loss. We look at crowns, we looked at all of that, and um, there's one aspect to this plan that's it's quite big, and we need to put that into place. Because a lot of our identity uh, teachings are going to come out of the book of Romans as well. Okay, so will you take us back to Revelation, please? Let's go to... <clears throat> Revelation chapter 6. Thank you. Thank you, person with button. Okay, we're not going to read all the seals. We're going to focus on the fourth seal. So, verse 7 and... Just to catch us up, everybody remembers that the Lamb is the only one found worthy to take the scroll from Him who sits in glory, uh, Yahweh, one God, and He comes as a Lamb slaughtered and takes the scrolls. Now, all of God's judgment has been sealed up. And only when the seals are loosed is God's judgments loosed. But there's something interesting about the seals. Although this happens outside of time, at the end of time, when judgment starts, we see that the seals are not necessarily uh, contained within that time frame. So keep this in mind, because the seals is open one by one 
as the effect of, of the fall into sin and God's judgment starts to flood into creation. Right. Okay. So, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Okay, so death. <clears throat> I think for most mankind, for most humans, in our subconscious and our conscious, we walk around with an idea of death, but it is an abstract, undefined force or power. It's something that happens to someone. They stop being alive and so that is death. And yet we see here the death is actually personified. So we walk around and because the idea of death is undefined or abstract somewhere in our minds, there is also an undefined fear that most humans have. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, um, verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shed in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So we know that because death is this abstract force or idea and we don't really know when it's going to come, how it's going to happen, most people walk around with an undefined fear of dying themselves, of those close to them dying, For people out in the world, this can become bondage. It's very real. It manifests normally when someone has passed that they loved and they cannot uh, move past the grieving or the loss. So I've sat with many people who's, who had a family or close loved one pass away and five years, ten years later they were still struggling. Uh, they tend to try and resurrect um, memories of the person continuously in an effort to try and keep uh, some form of life, um, give the memory life, give the person life. We see it in our culture, how people would go back year after year, um, Christmas time, to go put flowers somewhere, and uh, this is uh, part of that bondage, the fear of death. We can justify it by saying we're honoring the memory of the person. But it's a desperate plea in our fight against an enemy unseen. So how do you think of it? That's the teaching today. What well, part of it? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> 
So because this death, this force, this abstract fear that we have in the world, um, because we walk around with the fear of this, most of mankind, those who believe in God and those even sometimes who don't believe in God, would often ask the question, why would God allow this? Is it God who decides who lives and who dies? Does God look at a person one day and go, yeah, time's up, let's go? Is it God who actively searches out the world and decides whose time is up, who gets to stay a bit longer? If he's the giver of life, then it wouldn't be um, unreasonable to think he's also the one that takes life, yes. wouldn't it? Because the Bible says God gives and God takes away, but they shall be the name of the Lord. Yes, so mm -hmm. it would be a logical deduction to say that because he gave life, he takes life. Exactly. Let's have a look at this, this phenomena, death. And so here we see in this event, this event of the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, approaching the throne of God and receiving, taking the scroll from the one God and opening its seals. From this event, rides into the storyline on a pale horse, the ominous and dark figure called Death accompanied by Hades. No wonder humanity is scared of death. And he doesn't just ride into the storyline with an ominous presence and here he is looming in the darkness and in the shadows. He is given power. By whom? By God. By God. Great. Satan has no power. Satan has no power. God gives, this, these seals are released by God. And so this means that death in Hades is part of God's plan, his will, and he releases it. So he gives him authority. And here we see something interesting. It says, and he was given power, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth. To kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So power is given to them to kill a fourth of the earth. That means that, shall we go to since the beginning? Or since this has been in place. So when does this event take place? When does death enter the realm of creation? Well, we know that death enters right in the beginning. There was four human beings alive. Adam, Eve, and their two sons. This means this seal had to already be opened in the beginning. And immediately, death has been given authority to kill a fourth. Abel becomes the first fulfillment of what we're reading in the book of Revelation. 
and from thee throughout time. Because we see that power is given to death and Hades to exercise. This means that within every generation, no matter what they did, how they've done, and what they've done, throughout every generation, at least a fourth of all the earth will have to be killed by the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. It cannot be escaped. And even today, still after all these years, humanity is asking why? 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 Why does this person, why all of a sudden they didn't do anything wrong? How did this happen to this family? Why is this happening to the world? Why are people just... We're not talking about dying in a good old age. No, this is... The, the fourth the is dying by these things. Famine. What about the wild animals? Are people still dying from wild yeah, animals? Yeah, so, okay, so if we just go through this, so with the sword, obviously is war, domestic violence, murders, those kind of things. Hunger, we all are very aware of. With death, being something like a heart attack, maybe even cancer. And by the beasts of the earth. Now, we don't often hear of people getting mauled by lions. Yes, but not a, not a fourth of the earth. <laughs> but what about something like malaria? Or Ebola. Ebola. Came from monkeys. Mm. Yeah. Malaria, big killer. So yeah, it's 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 real. Swine flu. <laughs> and so we see that this is still in place today. And if we look at humanity, obviously for those out in the world who do not necessarily understand the concept of death and resurrection as some of us are privileged to do, we see that humanity as a whole from the beginning of time has evolved and grown wise in their ways and they've excelled in wit and intelligence all in the attempt to escape death to win death, because ultimately humanity lives with a fear of dying, either themselves or those close to them, or just the concept as a whole. And so there has been funds and fundings from governments and the wealthy of the world behind these projects and um, and investigations and studies done on how to overcome this, how do we win death, and yet with everything that they have discovered, and everything, all the cures that they have found, all the vaccinations that they have put into place, all the, you know, if there's famine, there is a fund that's going to provide food, and yet with all of that, we cannot escape death. It has been a mechanism that has driven the 
development of humanity and society, the way we do things, we have developed ways to produce more food. We, so much study has gone into dietary needs, nutrition. Medicine. We've come up with supplements, um, safety, just safety. We found all kinds of ways to make the world around us safer so that less people would die. And we're not even just talking about the medical world. And uh, this is our response to something that is released out of the judgments of God at the beginning of time itself. Humanity <clears throat> is fighting an uh, enemy, two of them that rode into our world on a horse. And it has actually driven us as a human kind to evolve, to create. We have been searching for ways to stop death. We're talking about the global population of the earth in every generation. We're talking about empires and kingdoms bringing together their best minds using great resources. We are talking about, in our day and age, the governments and kingdoms of the world coordinating their efforts to try and stop death. Something that was released by God into our realm as part of His judgments. And He has been given authority to kill a fourth. What is the possibility of success if we look at you, all of humanity's efforts? Is there going to be a generation that will stop death from taking a fourth? No. Now we can stop death from taking more, but it will take a fourth. cannot be changed. Now, the, the, here comes the good news. Okay? <laughs> There's good news. <laughs> You'll have That's to the teaching for today. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, there you go. Don't worry about death. The fourth will... It, what not. will be, will be. No. There's, there's some really good news in here. We just want to see... We want to see the battle. We want to see the big picture for what it is. Why does God come in with covenant? Why does God come in with a plan? This is part of the plan, but there's a bigger plan. Why um, is salvation not just going about going to heaven? It's not just about that. Yes, it's very important, but it's not about that. To save you from death. From exactly. To bring you back into a relationship with God. Exactly. And that's a very big part of it. But we're going to look at the beauty of it and the majesty of uh, the Messiah. So, let's continue. Okay. You go there. Okay, let's go to... Okay, you're going to listen.
1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay, so we're going to read longer pieces now, but I'm first going to just lift out some of the verses. So, verse 26. One Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse twenty six says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now go over to verse fifty four. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Now I'd like to just take a moment and put emphasis on this. So the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And now we know that death is not just an abstract power, force that is at work in the world. Death is a character that is ridden in on a pale horse. And so when we think of our enemies and kind of, you know, in the spiritual dynamic, our great enemy, obviously Satan, and I'm not diminishing that, but if we think about what this is saying, it says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Not Satan. Puts a whole other perspective on who it is that is causing all this fear. So, because if we think about it, in the garden, yes, Satan was there, and he deceived the woman. But really, when, even after the fall happened, the effect that he had directly on mankind was minimal if you compare it with the effect that death had. So he was an instigator, and they broke the law, but then when sin entered, death entered. And death entered by man, says, we'll read it just now, death entered by man. Satan only understood how to activate the process. And so verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Now, Kuki has actually thought about what this is. The sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. So, think about a scorpion. Death itself, unless there's reason to die... Death cannot actively come and exercise a force over you. But we know that the wages of sin is death. 
And so if you think of a scorpion that stings you, the sting of death would be sin. Because when sin is infiltrated, there is cause to die. And the strength of sin is the law. So you need a law to be broken. That's sin. The wages of sin is death. That's how death comes with its great tail full of poison and stings. And so every human being receives that sting. So the potential for death now is activated. And this goes beyond just the fourth. So we're looking at the one quarter of people that will, because they've been stung, eventually die. But there's an interesting aspect to the other three quarters. Remember also in the book of Revelation, when the great horde from the bottomless pit is released. And when they sting men, the agony is so great that they wish for death, but they cannot find death. That's the, that's the other three quarters of humanity. See, the, a third or a fourth will die, but three quarters will be stung and live out the agony and sometimes seek for death. How many people that are alive have times in the year, in their month, when they seek after death, but they cannot find it. Because they sting the poison of that sin that death stung them with. It causes the writhing and the pain and the agony. It sometimes causes people to wish for death rather than to live. If there was a possibility that we could gather all of the multitudes globally that have been putting so much effort and thought and resources into trying to escape this uh, terrible foe, enemy, death, trying to win the war against death, if we could get all of them together, and convince them to become free of the law, then we win. Death can be beaten. Because the sting of death is the law. Is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Strength of sin is the law. So if we could only get all of humanity to forget all of the effort they are putting into trying to keep the, us and themselves and their families alive, and just get all of them to become free of the law, death will lose its power. That sounds like a plan. Why is it impossible? So that we're going to see in the book of Romans, exactly how this works out. What's the dynamics that's keeping this whole big cosmic process going? It doesn't make sense that if we could get 
everyone free from the law, then death could no longer have this authority because of what the scripture says. See, as long as humanity, humanity keeps the law in place, the law will be broken and death Death will remain in authority to kill. Does it make sense? How did Messiah overcome death? He fulfilled the law. How did I overcome death? By being baptized. I have to be baptized into him so that I can be resurrected and I've been freed from sin and death. See, if I did not move all of my trust and focus from doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing, the law, if I didn't move it to the person of Messiah and his true plan in his fulfillment of the law, then I would have to keep the law and inevitably break the law. Go to that scripture we read the other day in Galatians. Curse. Listen to this. Listen to this. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So if it says, if it says written in the book of the law, we're talking about the Torah. First five books. And we won't exclude the prophets because the prophets help us understand the Torah. So actually, it says here, For as many as are of the works of the law <coughs> are under the curse. Okay. This gives us another big picture to understand the world around us, God's plan, and it helps us in our identity and understanding how to navigate all of this. We don't want to suffer from the sting. So we don't want to feel the pain because we're set free from the pain and we don't actually want to become one of the fourth that's killed. Why are so-called believers or even true believers still forming part of the fourth that are being killed by death? Why? Aren't we supposed to be exempt from that? We are. We should be. By the We should be. Yet, good Believers are still dying from cancer, still dying from accidents. The question is why? The question is why? And that's what's going to bring us, that's what's going to bring us to the study in Romans when we're looking at the covenants. That's the, where the answer lies. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so um, important to 
uh, unravel all the false ideas of Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, and get to the true biblical understanding of it. So this says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. What do we hear when we hear curse? We're thinking of, well, something bad is going to happen to this person. We did this teaching. Do you want to explain what a curse is? So curse in its essence is just the removal of the influence of God. Now this scares me even more than the idea of curse. don't know about you guys. Okay, so some curse, that's a small, isolated thing that's going to come my way. But, but if I put myself in a situation where I start becoming those who are of the works of the law. Right? So we find it in the book of Galatians. These are people that were put their trust and faith in Messiah. They started walking in the Spirit, and then they went back to put their trust in some works of the law. And he says to them that all, okay, no exemptions, 100% of them are under the curse. And what is the curse? God removes his influence. Not because he doesn't love his children, but he's not going to break his own law. He's not going to go against his own word. So let's look at the reality of this. This is very important to understand. For us to walk out the ways of God biblically right, we need to understand these things perfectly. The Galatians is a church of Messiah. And if they have been ministered to by, by Paul, it means they're all baptized, spiritual believers. Now, because of the influence of some, they went back to some of the works of the Lord. They didn't reject Messiah. They didn't stop believing in Messiah or the new covenant. They just went back to some of the works of the law. And what happens? He says to them, all that go back to the works of the law are cursed, are cursed, will be cursed, definite curse. Because if you keep one, then you have to keep them all. <clears throat> okay, now, if we're not talking about something bad's going to happen to you. We're talking about God. If a person goes back to the works of the law, God will remove his influence even from his former church. What happens when God removes his influence? <clears throat> there, will be, there will not be no influence. It's not just, okay, now we can do what we want to do. He removes his influence, in comes the other influences. Now the other influences is ba the basic principles of the world, as it has been put in place by the prince of the world, we know that's Satan, and he has powers and principalities. Now, so the influence of the principles of the world and the influence of the powers and principalities will now come to direct our our ways and our days. So God's influence is removed and the influence of the other things comes into our lives. Now that is curse. And it's not a little bit of each. It's not like diluted <laughs> blessing. It's not like, okay, but God's still going to look after me. He's just going to allow this one little thing to go wrong so I can learn my lesson. No. Curse means God removes his influence so that the other influences can come into our lives. 
And the way we can achieve this is by going back to one work of the law. One. Because you will break it. If you go back to the law and you continue in it, all of it, then you're saved. So I'm not saying you can't go back to the law, you just have to continue in all of it. Okay? But there is a natural law, and that is the law that the human beings will not continue in the law. As the entire story of the Old Testament and the Israelites proved it to us. There was only one ever that continued in the law, fulfilled it, and that is Messiah for the first 30 years of his life. Why is this important? It comes back to covenant. So our study of the book of Romans, we just wanted to make sure that everybody understands why it's so important to pay attention to a study of a, it's a big book, complicated part of the Bible. And so we've got to understand, we're going to have to apply ourselves. At times it's going to get difficult to understand, but we need to understand it because we need to walk in complete freedom because complete freedom from uh, the law of sin and death means that we have to now live out the law of the spirit of life in Messiah. That's the law over us. Walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. Now, so this freedom brings safety. So I will no longer be at danger to be part of the one-fourth. Death will not have that power. And I will also not have the danger of being part of the other th uh, three quarters of just suffering from the sting of death. That sounds good, right? So we've just got to understand how to navigate. And this, this law and grace, uh, the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life and Messiah, those two things, and if you think about it, a huge... Uh, part of everything in the New Testament uh, is about this, this one thing. Why is law and grace discussed so extensively in the New Testament? Why? Because of this. If we don't know how to work it out, then we are in danger to become part of the seals being released. And we've only looked at the one. There's seven seals. Now, we don't, this is not to bring fear. We are inviting everybody through teaching in this way into wisdom. Now, we can go to Romans. Oh, no. no Let's go back to, yeah. Finish this, yeah. Yes. Okay, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay, from verse 20. But now Messiah is risen from the dead. So this enemy that mankind has been fearing and fighting and planning and scheming against since the beginning of time. But now Messiah is risen from the dead. Did he become part of the one-fourth? 
Did death kill him before he was old? He did. Because he died. But now Messiah has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You saw it, didn't you? Plural. And has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. How many times have you read this before? <laughs> did, did, did your brain just correct the mistake they made every time surely, you read it? Surely Messiah would be the first fruit. So most people would read this and their brain will correct it. It can't be plural, so it has to be fruit. So it can make sense to me, right? But it says fruits. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Messiah all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Messiah the first fruits, afterward those who are Messiahs at his coming. And now I would refer all of you back to the teaching we did on his appearing. Mm. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Let's go back to verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. What do we just read? What does end mean? End is end. Finished. So he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and then... Puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Now apply full measures to end and to all. What are we looking at? What does eternity look like? Because this piece of scripture ends with that God may be all in all. Now we have labored for the last three years the one man truth 
over and over again. But if we look at what this is, just what this is, the fact of the matter is that if, if there is only one, where is the need for rule and authority and reigning and power? We think about Adam in the garden, before the fall, walking and living with God. There's no need ever for God to exercise authority. There's no need ever for God to extend ruling or reigning a power over Adam, because they are one. They're moving together. Adam follows where God leads. Because you see, the moment that authority has to be exercised, there has to be a separation. Authority has to move from one entity to another entity. And so the moment the fall happens, the moment that separation of that oneness between Adam and God happens, now they are two entities, and God has to extend rule and authority towards Adam. And yet, in the reconciliation, in the redemption that is in Messiah, when all things have ended and all things have been united in Messiah, and there is only one, then we see the end of all rule and all authority and power because there will never be the need for it again. Imagine a vast kingdom with a powerful and mighty king without any enemies, no enemies, no possibility. Just imagine, just a picture on earth, King Arthur kind of thing, beautiful, Beautiful rolling hills, no enemies. This king has no need for an army. He has no soldiers, not even one. And if no one in the kingdom will ever rebel, the king is having a great picnic on the lawns with all his people, the children are laughing, everybody has enough food. Enough of it with everything. He has no need of police. He has no need of laws to govern his people because his people loves him. He loves his people and his people are provided for. And there's no enemy. How many of us understood that when his plan is fulfilled, he puts an end to all rule and all authority, his own, his own, his own need to rule, 
I don't know about you, that's beautiful. My levels of trust in him just increases exponentially. I trust him. What kind of insight does this give us into the intention of his heart? Since the beginning, he's never wanted or desired to be autocratically in control. It says in the next verse, it says, He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. It was by necessity. And he will do it to put all his enemies under his feet. But once all of that is done, then he will go back to his original intent. And that is not to be over, to rule over. To have power over, it is have to have power together, to be unified, to be one. Practically, just a little practical application. We look at wives submit to your husbands, and we're looking at the whole controversy of what it looks like for husbands to have authority and wives to submit to their husbands. This would be a picture of what that should look like. You know what? If a wife never rebelled, never resisted her husband, her husband would never have the need to extend the authority that's been given to him. Because to extend any form of authority, we have to create even the slightest bit of distance. We have to go, OK, I'm stepping back a bit, stop. That is distance. That's the aspect of authority that God is removing. Because he saves us into Messiah. To be brought back into oneness. Into perfection. But as long as the possibility or the need for authority or correction or discipline remains, the possibility for just slightest separation needs to remain. How do you discipline yourself? or extend authority over yourself. That's what this beautiful piece of scripture refers to at the end of the plan. No law, no rule, no authority any longer. Not even God's own rule and authority. Not even all the power and the might and the authority of the Lord of Hosts will exist any longer. So that picture of him walking with the lion and the lamb, I'm hoping that has just become huge. And then he says, the covenant that I extend to you, the way that I invite you into relationship with me, that's what God Yahweh says. He says the way that, only way that you can come into 
relationship with me is through the covenant of Shalom. We cannot even start to look at the covenant without understanding his intention is to even lay down all his own authority and rule. So we on some level understood that heaven will be a perfect place, but this level of perfection and then, listen carefully believers, the covenant that he offers you from the beginning is the covenant of Shalom. He's offering you this. It's true, the Bible says that he will chasten and discipline us as children. <clears throat> while we're in the process of growing up into Him. The goal of our faith is what? For Him to be fully formed in us? For us to be fully conformed to Him. The renewal of the mind to the fullest extent. To come into perfect line with the Word, because that's the narrow straight road of, of righteousness. And to learn how to walk in that perfect road that is grace. Grace is His will coming toward me, making His will available and understandable to me so that I can walk in it. Covenant of Shalom. We come into a place where we understand how to walk that road perfectly. He doesn't need to extend authority or power or rule over me. He will extend it over my world and circumstances so that I can walk out the covenant of Shalom peace. Out there in the world, I've heard so many people, their relationship with God is, oh, I've got a good hiding from God. Because it says, if you're a son of God and He loves you, then He will chasten you. So their idea of, of proof or evidence that God loves you is when they feel that God has rebuked you. I'm not saying that's wrong. That's for ch disobedient children, isn't it? Okay, so, um, you still have a son in the house, and um, I'm assuming that every morning before school you give him <laughs> six of the best, a good hiding. <laughs> before he's done anything, you just go like, I'm going to correct and discipline you because I love you, to show you that I love you. And he goes, thanks, Dad, I feel the love. Bye. <laughs> Is that how we do it? So, so let's think logically about the thinking out there, please. People go like, oh, I know God loves me because He disciplined me. And the Word says that He only disciplines His sons. But if I didn't do anything wrong, and I'm not feeling any discipline, does it mean now I've got to go do something wrong so I can be disciplined so I can feel loved? <laughs> you, you, you've got kids, you know that's exactly what they do. They don't get enough attention, they get to do something wrong so they can feel loved. Which they think is, they're being noticed, and that must be love. Okay, so do we see that what he's offering us, listen, he's offering us the covenant of peace, shalom. He's not coming, I'm going to offer you the covenant of peace, but I'm going to have to discipline you every day, so that Into you can feel loved. Covenant. Now, I'm not saying that from our side we don't um, activate discipline at times. We do. 
But what if we could study the Word and know His plan and His intentions so that we don't have to move into discipline? Or as maybe only over Christmas once kind of thing. Just, just not often. Okay, so, so we see this is where we want to go. So we're going to look at covenant. But it's not the same kind of study that you do when you try and figure out, okay, I want to understand this covenant so I can do everything right so that I can get it right with God. He offered me a covenant of peace. I've got to understand his heart, his intention, what he has provided and created for me so that I can live in peace. I'm no longer part of the one-fourth that are going to be killed. Not vulnerable to that. And the sting of death? I don't know. I have an armor. Cannot touch me. Sting of death, no more. Why? Because the armor is all the characteristics of God. His heart, His mind. And no more law. So we don't cancel or discount the law. It's a matter of fact, a great part of what we are going to do in this study is to make sure that everybody understands we honor and uphold every word in the written book from the first word in the book of Genesis to the last word in the book of Revelation. And we do not consider any other external books besides that. But every word is honored and upheld by us in its right context, its right place to the rest of the scriptures. So we don't believe the law has been cancelled. It has been fulfilled. So that's that righteous road, the narrow road, good balance. Doesn't make sense. That's why it says, you've been set free from the law of sin and death. So you see this, but how do we, let's quickly have a look at how do we veer back into the law? When you look at, you've got kids, you've got a husband, you've got a mother. Okay, the more people we have in our lives, the greater the danger, higher the risk. So the secret is, just minimize relationships as <laughs> much as you can. I'm just joking. Luckily, you guys are all that I have at this moment. So if I start cutting some of you, you know, it's just to keep me safe, okay? It's nothing personal. See, there was this great plan. Those guys in the brown robes, they had it right. What you do is you live in a monastery, you separate from the world, and then you get everybody around you to take vows of silence. Wisdom. Because you see how we go back into the law. The easiest way is by judging the other. Because if they're doing something wrong, then it means it's a law to you, which means you have a law. So a person is going about their business and they're doing great. Just everything's okay. No bother. Then they judge the other person. Start thinking about it. So I was going through their mind. My boss doesn't know what he's doing. So unfair. 
And what happens? All of a sudden, it's like you start doing more things wrong, seemingly. Other people start judging you more, and you start judging yourself more. So it started off by you just seeing what he did, and he was wrong. What he did was wrong. You start thinking about what he did wrong, and two weeks later, you're sitting with condemnation, a little bit of depression. Why? You activated the law. That brings us to chapter 1 of Romans. And chapter 2. So see how this, all, all of these things we will see very, very clearly explained all through the book of Romans. Right, but now we've got to actually read a bit of Romans. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go. Sorry, Romans reads. Is it making sense? It's pretty simple when you look at it, right? Okay, please go read this little piece in 1 Corinthians again. One man so that God may be all in all. Remember we said that when he's going to take the scroll, the one sitting on the throne is Yahweh, the one God. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Son, Messiah, as a lamb slain, is going to himself to... Um oh, I thought you were leaving. No. I thought I offended you. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the lamb, the one, the one slain as a lamb, he's going to the one God Yahweh, of whom he's fully a part, to receive from his hand the scroll of judgments. Remember that. Now we see the same dynamic here at the end of the scripture that we read in one. Corinthians, so that God may be all in all. We have to, we have to, we cannot not do it. Read Ephesians in the fullness of time. So the first fruits, plural, Mm. is when at his resurrection, all believers from the beginning of time to the end of time is resurrected in Messiah on that day, whether you've been born or not. Because we have to be one body, right? Mm-hmm. If we're his body, you can't have the head over there separate from the body. That's a, it's just not right. Okay, so we want body and head together, one person. That would be better. So we resurrected in him on that day, with, together with him, and seated together with him in him in heavenly places. So that's what that first fruits mean. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 9 and 10. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Messiah, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. See how it fits together with the scripture we just read? Beautiful. So I am sorry to let all of you know that Peter does not have any authority at the gates when you get there. No key for Peter. (laughs) 
<laughs> so let's go to Romans chapter 9. Are you already there? My Bible's prophetic. No, it's good to go. <laughs> Your Bible's prophetic? Yes, it is. <laughs> I tell the truth in Messiah. This is Paul speaking. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. See from which positioning he's speaking. Okay, so most of us would have read over this the first few times we read because it sounds like Paul is just talking. We've He's got to going get like, to, I'm serious. We've, we, 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 we read this and we're going to, I'm further on, I'm going to find what he's actually trying to say. Something that's got something to do with me right now. Let's <laughs> right just now read through just this. Right now it's just like going like, you can, you can, like, I'm serious about what I'm going to say now. Listen, he's saying, I tell the truth in Messiah. It's not just saying, he's saying, he's referring to one man. He's referring to him being baptized into Messiah, that his existence, his feelings, his thinking comes from his positioning in Messiah. So we've got eternity mindset. We've got one man. All of that in this one sentence. Huge. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now he's just referring to the entire uh, state of New Jerusalem in the end times when everything is perfected. Mm. That's what he's referring to. He's saying, well, the way I'm speaking now, my conscience is clear because I'm speaking out of that which uh, is in line with the covenants, with the finished work, with the Word of God, with the end of the work. That's what he's saying. Okay. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Messiah for my brethren, my brethren, my countrymen. Now have a look at the footnote, footnote at the bottom. It says it could have been translated relatives. Relatives. Because you see, the first few times you read this, you go like, well, it's, he's talking about, he's actually just being gracious because the Pharisees have been trying to kill him. They're hunting him down. There's a price on his head. They're throwing him in jail. Um, the Israelites hate him. They've rejected him. No, it's not that. He's speaking, he's saying, it's my brethren, my relatives. That's why I have pain in my heart. according to the flesh, my relatives according to the flesh. So he's drawing them close. He's, he's, he's actually, it's very personalized. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory. Now, if we speak about the glory, uh, we refer back to chapter 8, where he said that God's intention with election is to glorify them. Right? Now, adoption can only come through covenant. And it can only come through the fulfilled covenant. So the adoption for the Israelites, that was a foreshadowing, practical foreshadowing of the adoption in Messiah, when God was in Messiah, uh, reconciling the world to Himself, as we see in the Gospels. 
the glory, the covenants. Pay attention that he's talking about covenants. The giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Messiah came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. He's back at that end thought that we saw in Corinthians. Now, what is he busy doing? What is he saying? He's going to expound on why all the Israelites are not being saved. Why won't the Israelites believe in Messiah? If they're all the people of God, why, why are they rejecting the gospel? Exactly. One of the reasons. But he's going to actually open up a deeper reason even than just that. So, let's look at what he's saying. He's saying actually that you would think because he's saying, uh, as, uh, from the fathers, it's the, fa the, the fathers, from Abraham the promises were given. And the promises were given to Isaac and Jacob for Messiah. And he's saying the adoption, the giving of the law, the giving of the law was a gift from God because the law was to lead them to faith. Mm. It was a tool to lead them to faith. Now, <clears throat> He's saying, actually, he, he's saying, it, it hurts my heart that these are the people that comes from Abraham. They are one family. Jacob had 12 sons. This is who the Israelites are. It's family, it's brethren, it's relatives. And they all have the same thing in common. The knowledge of God, the call of God. They were all brought together out of Egypt and brought to the promised land. They were all given the same law as revelation of God's goodness and will and a way of living, the feasts, to turn them back to God all the time. And he says, it hurts my heart that these, who has this history, who's been given all these things and from whom Messiah came, that they are not believing in God. They're not trusting in the very Messiah that the prophets prophesied about. But now he's going to explain how it happened. Because it looks like, it's a question, how can the Israelites not believe in Messiah? See, he's going to now explain the reality behind this. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. Now, so he's making a very rapid distinction between Israelite and Israelite. He's making a distinction about two brothers that comes from the same father and mother. They're both Israelites. They're not inbred, they're Israelites. And he's saying that although they might still be the same bloodline, the one will be a child of the flesh, another the, according to the promise, the seed. Now, all of us have gone through this. We have to look at all of this election, predestination, the will of God, and the seed again, 
because we're going to study how it pertains to the covenants. So he's saying you can have two Israelites, pure blood, and the one will not be born of the promise. And we see it happen, it started happening with Cain. We did to do that study. So the curse in the beginning, please go, we have to do this just for, we have to do every teaching properly, although we know these truths. So the curse is this. To the serpent and then the woman. Okay, uh, Genesis 3, verse... Okay, this is, a, this is part of the curse to the serpent. I'm just going to read verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Right, so from this scripture, right in the beginning, there's only two people, and we see that God says Satan will have seed, and there will be a seed of the woman. It says that he will increase her conception. She will have more children, and she representing all of humanity, she would have more children than was in the plan and predestination of God. And those people born, that will be the seed of the flesh. This is the group of people that we see separated at the great white throne judgment. On the one hand, the seed of God that's been redeemed in Messiah. That's His, created in His image and His likeness. Redeemed back to His image and His likeness. They will be on the one hand. The other seed of the flesh plus those who rejected God's call. Because some of the seed will also be lost. They'll be on the other hand. And they'll be judged. And so, here we see, he's starting to refer back to that, but he's pertaining it to Israel. He's now going to explain why the Gentiles can come in. And that's very important, because remember, we take the entire history of man back to Noah. And Noah had three sons, two of them blessed, one of them cursed. And so from the cursed Ham, there's the seed of the flesh that continues. Your faith becomes the nations, the Gentiles. And among the Gentiles, there will be seed that is redeemed and seed that is lost, but they are seed. And then there's Shem. And it's Shem here that's the interesting factor. Because although it's Shem, the chosen people of God, the chosen seed, they're only chosen because the Messiah will come from that bloodline. But even all Shem's descendants will not be saved. But Ham's descendants, the seed of the flesh, will all be lost. None of them can be saved. Right. Now he's going to explain a bit more. He says, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. He's not talking about people that later in life decided to reject God and now they're the children of the flesh. Because that's the way the church has always interpreted it. He's making a distinction between his flesh born, mm -hmm. that is flesh. Those are the children of the flesh and these are not children of God. We've got to get that right. And we're not Calvinists, we just read the Bible for what it really says. Um, 
But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. The children of the promise are counted as the seed. Right. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, this is not Mary. <laughs> but it's very interesting and very important that he says this. The promise was that Sarah shall bear a son. And this is the son of promise. Now it's very important to understand. We know that Abraham was old and Sarah was old. But he says he will come when the time is right so that she can conceive. It means that the birth of a son or daughter of God is by his expressed will, design and visitation. Again, the psalm that we were looking at in the song. Before I had form, you knew me. That doesn't pertain to all people. Only when, on the rare occasion, one of God's seed is going to enter the world. It's by His expressed will, His expressed timing for His expressed purposes. I hope that by now you all understand why this is so important. It goes to the very core of our identity. We're not just people. Not one of the seed of God through the generations can come into this world outside of His expressed will. Mm. And not one of those seed are outside of His expressed will in His plan and the purposes for that person's life. The church out there is teaching everybody that God has purpose for everyone's life. But the Bible says there's the seed of God that's born into the world and there's the seed of flesh. So we're not focusing on them and the consequences for them. We're focusing on if I'm standing here today, I'm the seed. I'm the seed of promise. And so my entire life matters. Every day matters, every moment matters. Who I become matters. Okay. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Uh, unfortunately, Paul just decides to call it what it is, election. <laughs> And 90% of believers out there refuse to acknowledge election. Yeah, he says, so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. <laughs> Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You all know the story, but we need to get it right. We teach this over and over because you need to have it so straight in your minds that you can be out there, a source of truth of the plan of God to others. That's why we keep doing this. 
It takes practice. I've been doing this for many years, over and over and over. I'll never get bored of it. Because we need to have it straight. Okay, so what does it mean? It says, he who calls. It's not, oh, I'm calling everybody to salvation. When it says, he who calls, he's talking about the way that it is determined and prophesied. Because right after that he says, what God said about the children. It says that God said, the older shall serve the younger. So before they're even born, God decides what's going to be what. Who's going to be who. How things are going to work. And it says that he loves Jacob. They haven't done anything yet. God did not reject Esau because he bought the soup. That was just a manifestation of that which was in his blood, who he was. It says, before Esau did anything, God hated him. It's a strong Stones. statement. It says, God hated Esau from before he's born. Now that flies in the hair of all the doctrine out there. Doesn't it? Because didn't they tell us that God loves everybody and wants to save everybody? Now we're not saying that He doesn't love all His seed. He loves all His seed. And salvation, generally through mercy, is a truth that is available to everyone. But it is by the intimate, intimate action of God Himself toward the believer that salvation comes. Now, you can have you can have salvation available to everybody, but they cannot enter until God reveals Himself to a person and intimately, intimately gives them, breaks open the faith of Messiah in them by the revelation of Messiah so that they can respond. And then they're saved by grace. So this is very important. We understand that. Now ask yourself, can you explain this to others? We're at that point where we've now gone through discipling, intense discipling. Now we've, we've already stepped over that line where now you need to start testing yourself. Can you explain this to others? The, the image they that they've created. Yes. Yeah. See, God allowed the Ark of the Covenant to remain with the Philistines for a while. In the temple of their God. So they have that false Jesus. But... The time has come where Yahweh, the Almighty God, is going to restore and return His covenant. But see, He's going to have to return it to a people that are ready for it. Because He doesn't, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want us to come to the place where He wants to restore His, his Ark of the Covenant to us and we, are still vulnerable to look into the ark. Mm -hmm. 
Because what did they see when they looked into the ark? The law. And he broke out against them immediately and slaughtered them. God returns the Ark of the Covenant to his people. They are elated. They rejoice. Sorry, Gary, you weren't here last Sunday. So they all know what I'm talking about. We did this last Sunday. We looked at it. It was Thursday. Somewhere outside of time. We did this. And we... And so... So they, they're so glad. They take the cows, they bring a sacrifice to God, and then someone decides to see what's inside. See, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat, the place where the blood is sprinkled. And so what we know from all that we've done today is we don't go beyond that point where the blood is sprinkled. The covenant of Shalom we stay within the safe confines of that. Okay. I am not going to go open my coffin and see and look at my corpse. I'm not going to go dig in the archives of the Most High God's personal chamber to find my book and see what's written in it. It's easy to say I don't want to, but sometimes we do. I'm not going to sneak in and see what he has written about my faults and my sins. Because he will break out against you. No matter if you are in the new covenant and you are seed. If you, if you want to dare accuse yourself, this is what they did. They went beyond the mercy seat. Because that wasn't enough. Okay? Any thought of sin, me, self, come, I answer it with the righteousness is His. The righteousness is His. The enemy comes and tells you you're not good enough. The righteousness is His. I don't even have to think if the enemy is right or wrong. There's no, um, no defense. No answer. All I know is His righteousness. So we don't go beyond the mercy seat. If he is busy restoring, and he is busy restoring the Ark of the Covenant to us because it's the Ark of the Covenant. We have now come to the place where we are studying the book of Romans to understand covenant. We have been laden with the responsibility in the entire world, together with others, to not only know the truths of the seed of who we are in adoption, to whom pertains the covenants, and the promises, we've been laden with the reality of acknowledging God's plan for what it is and understanding how the covenants function so that He now can restore over time the Ark of the Covenant to us. And it's all about the covenant, but we don't go beyond the mercy seat, no matter what we do. <clears throat> do we understand that? So before the children were born, 
God loved Jacob. Where's the other one? Can you remember where we read that? God loved Jacob. Oh, I cried when we read that the first time. The session was just over. I was undone. I cried a lot. <laughs> Isaiah 11 verse 1 When Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son Just give the scripture again Hosea 11 verse 1 how beautiful is that? Just he literally a, read, he went, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And then his head went bang. And then he was just, I was like. <laughs> That's so beautiful. It was nice. He's talking about me. Okay. <laughs> we are Jacob. We are Israel. So we're going to end a little bit early Yeah. Because I think we need to take some time and meditate on how wonderful his plan is. Okay, I know. I'm going to go to the It seemed like you were finishing. Okay. <clears throat> now, let's read the rest of it. Uh, we're, back, we're back in Romans chapter 9, verse... 14. Your concept of, I think we're going to cut it short. Let's read the rest of chapter 9 and then we're still not done. (laughs) (laughs) What shall we say then? Indeed. Is there unrighteousness with God? Now he's asking this question because it just said God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Mm. Is there unrighteousness with God? So if we're saying that from the beginning there's two seeds and that some of the human beings on earth are not that seed, they're not God's seed, they're not God's children, they will not be saved, then people say, but that's not love, that cannot be right, God is love. Yeah, he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you. And that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. So, we see why this is important in our understanding of how to share the gospel with the world. Because this is about the gospel. It's about the gospel. God says, whom he hardens, he hardens. Whom he has mercy on, he has mercy on. Now, if God just, if, the, if it's true, the gospel that's out there, the false gospel that says God loves everybody, he wants everybody to be saved, then why would God harden someone? Does the Bible say that he does harden people? He does. It wasn't just Pharaoh. Okay. So let's just read the Bible for what it is. Because this is the true gospel. It's the biblical gospel. 
You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? It's very important to see that he says from the same lump. He's still speaking about the Israelites. What? It's exactly the answer. Who are you to question God's will, the way he does things? Um, and you know what has happened? Christianity, Western Christianity especially, has changed this because it didn't suit them. They went like, we don't like this story, so we're just going to change God's gospel. And they ended up with another God. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Those that will be at the great day of the glory of the Lord in his presence and acceptance, he prepared beforehand for glory. Why is this important? Not to say that others are not saved. It's for us to understand who we are. The next time you have a moment of, of depression, uh, of anxiety, you answer it with this. This is the answer. You know who I am? The enemy comes to you again, says you're weak, you're not good enough. You go like, do you know who I am? Not only that, it puts us in a position to respond to God correctly. Exactly. So not, oh, why is it so hard, Lord? Ease it up a little, Lord. Help me, Lord. Just. Next time you think, well, God feels far. You don't know who you are. If you say that. Or, someone says to me, it feels like they can't reach God. That, you know, it feels like it's far. I'm going to go like, figure out if you see it or not. Because that's where you start. He says, but I've been a Christian for years. I don't care. If you are in Messiah, you cannot feel far. If you are in Messiah. Okay, if you're in the swimming pool and you feel dry, you're stupid. <laughs> Unless you're in there, like, in a spacesuit or something. <coughs> See, it's impossible. You cannot be swimming in the swimming pool and go like, I'm so dry. <laughs> so dehydrated. See? See what I'm saying? Okay. What if God wanted to show His wrath and to make His power known? Endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, of wrath prepared for destruction, and that that and that he might make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And now he's going to a big, big point here. He's saying that um, in 
Noah and in Abraham, there was the seed of promise. And later on they became Gentiles as well, not just the Jews. And only those who are of faith are true Israel. As he says also in Isaiah, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, listen carefully, this has to do with covenant, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now please refer back to the teachings on Zion. I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. This is... The light's going on. Okay. So he says here, the Gentiles attain to the uh, attain to righteousness, the righteousness of faith, and the Israelites did not because they pursued the law of righteousness. They didn't do it by faith. And we'll pick up here next Sunday. But there is a little bit more. One or two hours. Let's go to chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Do you want to finish for us? From verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Messiah who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Messiah? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Yahushua, our Lord. Explain that last Okay, so nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Yahushua, our Lord. So we understand that God is love. And within himself he contains love. But this says that the love of God is in Messiah. Okay, so, before anything was created, before the Son was begotten, when there was just Yahweh, just the one God, He had all truth in Himself. Everything was true, but unless it is expressed, how is it known to be true? Wait. Yes. Does it mean that if his love is in Messiah, then he has no love in him anymore? No, because him and Messiah one. Okay. Luckily. <clears throat> so we understand that he extends his love towards his son, toward Messiah. But now, earlier and throughout the years, we have established that Messiah is not just an individual person as the Son of God. We understand that Messiah is the fullness of the body. Uh, it is the oneness of God. It is that in, into which all things are united together, into which all things have been reconciled. To God, And this says that the love of God is now in Messiah, Yahushua. Which means that the love of God is now in us. And not just in us, but it is us, or we are it. The way it works is like this. So God calls us to perfection. Before we were born, He knew us and He created our form. He knew our form. And He predestined those who belong to Him, His seed, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And we know that to love God is to keep His commandments. And so we're looking at this conveyor belt process again. <clears throat> so as he extends his love toward those who belong to him, who will be reconciled 
and unite together in Messiah in the end of all things and be part of the one. As he extends his love, this is not just an emotional flutter. He extends towards those who belong to him, himself, as manifesting in them. He changes them from glory to glory into his image. And as we respond, remember the last season we ended with the love of God. And as we respond to his love, and the more we love him, and the more we respond to his love, it means that we move even further into keeping his commandments, because loving God is keeping his commandments. Which means that the more we love him, the more we keep his commandments, and the more we keep his commandments, the more we are transformed, conformed into his image. And once we have reached perfection, once all things have been united together and reconciled together in Messiah, then that will be the result and the proof of God's unfailing love. How do we know that God is love, that He loves us? People say, well, we know because He sent His Son. We know that God is love because He, with His love, brings us into perfection, all of us together, the elect, the remnant, in Messiah. And the love in Messiah, that is, all of us in Messiah, is the proof of God's love. Because before He extends love, there's no substance of love, or evidence of love, or power of love. But in extending love to you, and you start responding, His love draws you into obedience, draws you into relationship that leads to more obedience, and then you want more of the love. So His interaction with you in kindness, in goodness, in power, in authority, because He's unwavering, uncompromising, that draws you into deeper love that is this never-ending process that perfects us in Messiah. And so the love of God in Messiah is all the redeemed in perfection in Messiah at the end of time. That's love. It's proof of love. His love now has substance. His love can be proven by every name that is written in the book of the Lamb. Because He decided and He did and finished what He decided. So there's no true gospel. There's no truth in a gospel that says people choose Him. Because His great love is that He chose us. We respond and His love transforms us. And in the end of everything, this is what the scripture says, nothing can separate us. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is what it means. And it ends with God's love in Messiah.
Amen. Um, if anybody has a question, feel free to ask it. you feel when you say it how peace settles upon you? Did all of you feel that? At first when I realized he says he's going to end all rule, all authority, I was like, but we need a God that is <laughs> Please ruling. Lord, rule and reign. <laughs> but then I felt this unbelievable peace settle on me. It's not needed. It's because he, it's not just that he, it's not an absence. It's because there's more to it. A security and a peace and a rest. And a comfort. A, a trust. I feel like there's a. And he's. This is this is the offer he makes us from the start. He says, "I'm offering the the covenant of shalom. It's not. You don't have to work for it." You will learn what it is, you will enter into it. My love will conform you, my word will transform you. But he actually, before you know anything, while you're still dead in your sin, this is what he comes with. The covenant of Shalom. He says, I'm going to give you that end result, this is what I'm offering you. That substance can form in us while we are still in the flesh. See, so we talk a lot about overcoming. And people say, but how, you can never overcome worry and anxiety completely. And we want to conjure up some form of peace, but it's not consistent because it doesn't have that substance. That substance is the substance of that. That he that He came to us with from the start, from the first moments of us getting to know Him, from the first moments of revelation of Him. This is what He came, came with. That can become substance in you, can take form in you. We don't yet know what it looks like when it has been fully formed in us. Mm. But we know that it is finished on His side and we have been given it. So we don't work towards it. That's why the works of the law is something we have to avoid in totality. Yet, loving Him is keeping His commandments. That's different. That's not keeping, that's not the works of the law. Mm. Because He writes it on our hearts mm -hmm. and by His Spirit, 
mm. leads us to continue in it. But continuing in the finished work of Messiah, that's keeping the law. So there's a restfulness that comes with it. It would be wise to just give yourself to that. Just allow yourself to be absorbed by that peace, yes. In Hebrews, when it speaks on the rest, is that also kind of left in? Exactly the same. Exactly the same. Because see, in Hebrews, when it says enter the rest, it's connected to the promises, and the promise is Messiah, and Messiah is the covenant, and the promised land was representative of the New Jerusalem. So it's exactly the same thing. <coughs> the entire Bible basically <laughs> is about this. One thing, only. <laughs> so we're running out of teachings. I don't know what we're going to do next time. We just find different ways of explaining the same thing. <laughs> okay, now, we've, uh, the, we've allowed the atmosphere to shift. Okay, focus your, just your thoughts on the truth of that when he ends all rule and, and let that peace settle on you again. Just practice it quickly. Let's go into that rest. That substance, it's yours, it is your covenant, it is where you are at in Him right now. Despite our circumstances, it's where we are at. That's our reality. Let's go into that. You don't need thoughts. You don't need to talk to Him. And yet, his peace, his rest, that, that rest, that fullness, that peace, shalom covenant will just fill your being. You'll feel it in every cell of your body. Father, we thank you that times like this we can remember in Messiah that the big and the small things in our life is our opportunities to overcome. Our opportunities to come back to this place over and over and to learn to live here. Live in the fullness of the love of the Father in Messiah. And already we are part of the glory cloud. Already when Abraham was looking in the vision of the new Jerusalem, he was looking at us already there. Even in Abraham's day we were secure in the everlasting. We thank you for that. Lord, in the places of our mind and our thoughts and our emotions where we have not yet learned to 
walk free from the works of the law, help us to understand. Thank you for grace. Thank you that all of us at Heimsbier in to that dangerous place, but because of your finished work we are not cursed and not judged, unless we do it intentionally. We thank you that we came into righteousness by faith, even though we didn't even seek it, because of your goodness. In any area of our lives where the works of the law still features in our minds, our hearts, our actions, our, our ideas of our own perfection, our own efforts, where it manifests, where the law manifests in our fears and our insecurities, Lord, will you help us to understand, to see it, so that we may answer the righteousness of Messiah is all I know. That's all there is. The law has been fulfilled in Messiah. We thank you. For the law of Ruach life in Messiah. Hallelujah. We pray in the name of Yahushua. And we witness together, Yahweh is one. Amen.